0: Why are you here? I'll invite you to ponder that for a moment. Why are you here? Perhaps it's because you are looking for something, or because you have lost something, or because you've lost someone. Perhaps you're here because your parents made you, or alternatively, perhaps you're here because your children made you. That does also happen. Perhaps you're here because you have always been, or because you feel you have not been here enough. Perhaps it's because you feel some nagging sense of obligation, or because you wish that you wanted to be here, or perhaps because you wish that you wished that you wanted to be here. There's no shame in these answers, and surely we have all felt some, maybe all of them. In his lectures to young priests on the eve of their ordination, even the Archbishop of Canterbury, Michael Ramsey, would say, You put yourself with God, empty, perhaps, but hungry and thirsty for him. And if in sincerity you cannot say that you want God, you can perhaps tell him that you want to want him. And if you cannot say even that, perhaps you can say that you want to want to want him. Embedded in the Archbishop's exhortation is something beyond the obligation or the expectation. It's a kind of longing, a longing perhaps for comfort, for quiet, for confession, for absolution, for the gift of Jesus Christ in the Word of Scripture and in the sacrament of the altar. After all, we all need to be fed. And so again I ask, why are you here? And this time, not why you're in church, but why you're in this church, particularly. If we're honest, many, if not most of us, are in one denomination or another because our parents were. And that's no small reason. Some of us have been in these pews since before we were born. Others, this is not the church of their birth. Perhaps you came to it, maybe easily, maybe after considerable struggle, maybe this is your first day here. It's fitting that today's lessons fall in the midst of the Week of Prayer for Christian Unity, because both Matthew and the Apostle Paul have given us some lines to mull over when it comes to denominationalism. The Week of Prayer for Christian Unity has its origins in 1908 with an American Franciscan friar, but it's become an immense undertaking over the last century across nations and denominations, now organized by the World Council of Churches. At the turn of the last century, there was an extraordinary growth in ecumenism in America and around the world, some of it beautiful and inspiring, um, others a sign of unbelievable hubris. In the Episcopal Church, a new vision of the Church began to hold sway, something called the National Church Ideal. This was the idea that all of the mainline Protestant churches would one day be wrapped up together under the banner of Anglicanism. This was the foundation of St. John the Divine in New York and the foundation of Washington National Cathedral. But there were other ecumenical projects also. There was dialogue with the Orthodox, so much so that in 1900, an Episcopal bishop in Wisconsin was consecrated in the midst of an Alaskan bishop, a man who would eventually become the great patriarch Tikhon of Moscow. And in the decades after the Second World War, the movement would hit its very peak, where the Archbishop of Canterbury, Michael Ramsey, and Pope Paul VI would meet in the Sistine Chapel, of all places, to sign a joint declaration, to exchange blessings, and to exchange rings. Some hoped in that year, 1966, that they would finally live to see the reunion of the Anglican Communion with the Church of Rome. Others couldn't imagine anything worse. A few hours before, two Baptist ministers had stood up in the congregation and heckled Ramsey. The signs they wore read, Archbishop, a traitor to Protestant Britain. Within a decade, those hopes were dashed. A relief to some, a devastating blow to others, some of the reasons foolish and trivial, others, like the ordination of women, of paramount importance. Choices that proved to be unbounded blessings for the Church. So what does it mean when the great loving work, the gospel imperative of inclusion, sometimes means ever-widening division? What does it mean every week when we pray in the creed for our one holy Catholic and apostolic Church? What does it mean in the suffrages when we pray, Father, for your holy Catholic Church that we all may be one? In this bewildering landscape of American religion, non-denominational, Pentecostals, evangelicals, Baptists, Congregationalists, Presbyterians, Methodists, Lutherans, Anglicans, Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox, Catholics, Old Catholics, and everyone in between, many, though not all of us, praying the same prayers, confessing the same creeds, celebrating the same sacraments. What does unity mean? And again, why are you here? This week of prayer for Christian unity goes perhaps counterintuitively from a Wednesday to a Wednesday this year because it's bookended by two of the great feasts of the church. One, the confession of St. Peter last week, and the conversion of St. Paul this week. Peter and Paul represent to us great inseparable strands of the church. One is institutional. Peter, to whom Jesus says, Tu es Petrus, you are the rock upon which I shall build my church. The other, more evangelical perhaps, Paul, a former persecutor of Christians, who, while on the road to Damascus, was struck down with a divine light so bright that he couldn't see for three days. We've encountered both men today. Their shared ministry wasn't always an easy one. We find contention in their epistles. We find argumentation. We find, if we're honest, an extraordinary amount of sass. But they remind us constantly that the work is not about them. We heard Paul write this morning, that it's been reported to me that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Were any of you baptized in the name of Apollos, or Crispus, or Paul, or, God forbid, Cephas? This might be good to know. Were any of us baptized in the name of the House of Bishops and Deputies of the Protestant Episcopal Church of the United States of America, or of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, or of the Presbytery of Southern New England? No! We've been baptized in the name of Jesus. We live in and strive with and are fed by the Church of Christ. The reason for our disunity are many and some are of great importance. But just like the differences between Peter and Paul, the great maddening diversity of Christian expression has a potential to bring innumerable blessings. You can't have one without the other. The experience of other Christian believers different from ourselves is part of what keeps us honest, part of what challenges us, part of what inspires us in our shared work. Because we're praying for unity, not uniformity. The man Jesus calls to build his church, church, Simon, who is called Peter, is not a scholar or a judge or a scribe or a priest. He's a fisherman, and not a particularly good one at that. Everything about Jesus' earthly ministry teaches us that he envisions for us something new—that the power structures we imagine and invent for ourselves are inadequate that they comically miss the mark. Jesus asks us to cast down our old nets in favor of new ones. He doesn't ask us to be fishers of Presbyterians, or of Anglicans, or of Roman Catholics, or of the people we know, or of the people that we like, or of the people we feel comfortable around. We're not called to be fishers of the well-educated, or of the less well, of the comfortable middle class, or of the poor. Jesus asks us to be fishers of all people. There is no modifier. He doesn't tell Peter how it will unfold. He only says, follow me. How have we followed? How have we fished? As we contemplate our shared ministry as Christians, we should give thanks for the ways in which we thrive in our little corner of the one Catholic and Apostolic Church. There's much about the Anglican way to inspire hope and joy, our service to the poor and needy, the openness of our doors, our theology, our learning, our music, our art. But we must always resist the temptation to think that having good liturgy and good day schools might be both a competition and the sum total of our Christian ministry. It's not. We have much more to offer to God than this. So I hope you'll take a minute now to think about the church of your birth. Maybe it felt quite similar or wildly different. Maybe it was this very place, in which case I charge you to imagine this church in the past. What were the blessings of that place or that time? How did it feed you? How did it fail you? How can we carry those wounds and those blessings into this place? for the enrichment of our Christian lives, and for the greater glory of God. I'll end here. Last night, I was driving to St. Stephen's for the Christian Education Forum with parents and children of the parish. As I went up the Danbury and Wilton roads, I passed a fair few churches. At Our Lady of Fatima, the parking lot was full for the Vigil Mass. At the Congregational Church in Wilton, parishioners loaded baked goods and meals into cars, and at St. Stephen's, parents arrived to speak earnestly and beautifully about their hopes for their children's faiths and lives. You'd think that Saturday night the churches would be locked up and dark, but they were all alive, working to the same ends, praying for the same souls, serving the same living God. We have not been baptized in the name of Paul or Apollos Or Cephas. We've been baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. This is enough. So let us give thanks for our blessings. Let us pray for the strength and vision to overcome our failings. Let us look to and learn from our Christian brethren, even when it challenges us. And let us pray that in the fullness of time we may be one, not all alike, but one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.